0: Hi, everyone. I'm Janelle Estes, Chief Insights Officer at User Testing.
1: And I'm Andy McMillan, CEO at User Testing.
0: And today we're very excited to have James Lane joining us on the Human Insight podcast. James is a Senior Product Design Manager at AAA, and his story, which you'll hear more about today, is captured in our book, User Tested, published in February of 2022. James and his team are also a user-testing case study and received our 2020 Illumi Award for Outstanding Business Impact. Welcome to the show, James. We're thrilled to have you today. Uh, Thanks for having me. So you're currently a Senior Product Design Manager at AAA Club Alliance. Can you tell us a bit about your role, your team, and what you're focused on?
2: Certainly. Um, I oversee product strategy and design for our digital channels. Uh, and with that, I manage a small UX team, consists of a UX designer, UX writer, and researcher. Uh, and we work with a talented product manager and dev lead to deliver better online experiences for AAA members. Um, and the focus of my work essentially is to overcome this you know, big assumption that a lot of uh, uh, members as well as non-members have about AAA, that we're a tow truck company. Uh, the fact is, we offer a lot more than that. And so our digital channels have to both deliver the services, but also serve as a discovery tool for members uh, who may not be taking full advantage of their member benefits.
0: Yeah, it's, a, it's I'm sure, a challenge um, that you're continually working on as a company to sort of shed that uh, perception uh, that folks have. If you don't mind me asking, what are some... What are some ways that you've approached that challenge? What are some things that your team has done to sort of uh, move beyond the perception of AAA being a tow truck company?
2: Well, you know, a, a lot of this is about uh, sometimes saying less. Uh, you know, there's a, there's an impetus, I think, within a lot of companies and, and people, which just what companies are, um, to sort of over-explain things, to sort of over-communicate. Uh, and on some level, I think what we found, and this is represented in the case study as well, is that by focusing our message and narrowing what we were trying to say to people, we actually were able to communicate more. Uh, and a big part of knowing what to prioritize was the user testing insights that we got. And so, you know, understanding where to where the inflection points were, you know. We knew what the assumptions were, we're a tow truck company, but what else are we? You know, they had a couple little hooks into there, like travel or hotels or things like that. So how do we use that, right? People see us as they trust us in the automotive space. How do we use that? And so we would look at for ways to kind of hook into a broader message without overwhelming them at the same time.
0: Yeah, and I think that that was a, a core sort of, I guess, approach or strategy with the redesign that is the case study that that we uh, have talked about in the book and and uh, in the user testing customer case studies. Um, so you you redesigned the new member join flow, uh, and I found the story so compelling because it wasn't just you know the assumption that people make about design being you know we just sort of tweaked the the colors and made it more on brand and and it performed better. There's actually a lot more that went into it. So can you tell us a little bit about that uh, initiative, the approach you took, and the results that you're seeing?
2: Certainly. Um, you know, yeah, on the surface, this was pretty simple. It's an acquisition challenge. How do we get more prospects to become AAA members? right? But as you really kind of dig into this, the, the challenge, really became, challenge really became our own assumptions. How do we view the market and tell our story? Uh, and the reality was you know, a lot of the information we were working with was quantitative survey data, uh, and it focused on the cost of membership as a driver, whether people join, and also why they leave. Uh, so as a result, this was being prioritized in our communications, and, and we threw a lot of people to justify that cost and trying to explain, again, over-explain uh, why they should become a member. And, you know, ultimately, our initial proof of concept study that we did, we were first uh, evaluating user testing as a platform, uh, showed that one, we were yes, overwhelming prospects with information, uh, and two, we were anchoring their perception of value to the cost of membership. Uh, effectively, we had lost sight of the fact that value is cost plus benefit. Uh, and our priorities were being driven by these internal assumptions about what mattered, based on years of of large scale survey data.
1: So, uh, James, I I love this story of just thinking about how to expand the whole approach in the organization and and really getting customer centered about that. You know, as you think through post that success, right? So you have this big initiative. I can imagine how important the member acquisition flow is uh, in today's day and age of of how customers are are acquired in in. Uh, in so many different businesses, especially yours. Um, so after this success and this great story, um, it sounds like you've built some momentum around just the practice overall of more customer-centric design, uh, more customer-centric decision-making. Um, what are some of the initiatives that you're focused on now, sort of taking this new muscle and applying it to, to other problems?
2: Exactly. Uh, yeah, well, that, that's still very much an evolving story. Um, you know, Certainly the results were undeniable. But much of the org just thought we hit it with a pretty stick really hard, uh, that somehow because it looked better, it converted better because that's how they see design uh, as the output, the visual artifact. Um, Fortunately, the scale of that success gave us the opportunity to take on those assumptions directly. Um, We now have an operating model that puts human insights at the center of what we do in digital. Uh, I was able to build the UX team I mentioned earlier. And just last month, we launched a redesign of our entire website. Uh, which for AAA meant selling our perspective and process into multiple lines of business. For example, the, the travel group did not see our success with membership as a clear sign we could help them. Uh, we had to build trust from the bottom up, and that meant proving that we really understood both their business and their customer. And they were resistant at first, but through years of testing, we were able to share highlight reels of AAA members being uncertain and uninspired about taking the next step. Uh, and we coupled that with quantitative data to support our hypothesis. Uh, members wanted to engage with us. We just weren't able to connect with their needs. And uh, so after a six-week split test, sending half of our traffic to the legacy site and half to our new design, uh, we once again blew out expectations. Uh, Visits to that travel homepage are up 60%. uh, Travel searches for hotels, flights, cars, et cetera, are up almost 70%. And searches for the AAA travel agents are up over 50%. Uh, Now, those are the big numbers, but we're also seeing significant lift in engagement for other lines of business too. And it really just cements for the organization that uh, we're onto something special here.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic to hear. I think that that's, is so compelling and so interesting. And you mentioned that it's sort of like an evolving kind of practice and, and, you know, the culture is still sort of changing there. Can you share a little bit about what it was like to stand up some of those changes in the acquisition flow? Like, you know you had captured all this data, you had deep understanding of the customers, you had an idea of what needed to happen, you had all the data and perspectives you probably could possibly capture. And, <laughs> and
2: then what? Um, well the the important and then what I think is that you know nothing happened. Uh, un- unfortunately not nothing happened. Uh, the organization itself, you know, before the you know we had before insights or sorry when we got the insights but before the success Um, we had a lack of belief as an organization in the quality of those insights. Uh, Fundamentally, the organization didn't understand how to to value and integrate qualitative insights into their operations. And so that initial prototype was was part of a proof of concept study you guys do as your normal sort of like, you know, come and take a ride uh, process. You know, we got some great insights there and we developed a prototype and we put it in front of senior leadership and they said, we don't believe it. There's no way your dozen people are going to, overcome our beliefs in the thousands of survey responses we have about how what matters to, to these prospects. And um, we believed it, but, you know, there's only so much we can do when senior leaders say, no thanks, but no thanks. Um, and so effectively, that design sat there gathering dust for about a year um, until, unfortunately, we had a reorg, right? We had a new CMO come in. Um, you know, he saw the immediately the value of, of it and said, sign us up. Uh, and I had a new boss suddenly, and she trusted me and said, do what you think is right. And, and these aren't the kinds of things you can rely on uh, to, to build success for an organization. You can't just hope that new leadership will come in and understand the value of something. You can't hope that you'll have a boss that says, I trust you, go do it. Um, and so it was a lot of learning on, on my part as to what does and does not work uh, when it comes to you know sort of driving change, uh, especially for qualitative insights within an organization.
1: I've had more than a few instances in my career as well, where you feel like I've got a blocker and you're sort of trying to manage through that. And then, and then things change, but I've also found uh, sometimes in those situations with the benefit of hindsight, I sort of look back and go, okay, well, now that I see how well it worked, like what is, you know, anything else I could have done to sort of help drive this kind of change, you know, is it, is it more, is it think smaller initially, more incrementalism? Is it think bigger? Is it get higher? Like do you have any, um, thoughts uh, or advice you'd give to someone else? So if you were at, you know, one of our user groups, for example, and someone said, yeah, like we've got a similar design that we really believe in. We've got customer insights that tell us it's a really good idea. And it's also collecting dust on a shelf other than organizational shifts. um, Any other thoughts or advice you could give to people on how to how to try to get those designs dusted off and and put in place? Absolutely. I mean,
2: (laughs) yeah, learned learned a lot, especially when not how not to do things. Um, I, I would say, you know, first and foremost, and again, I get you know now asked about this uh, quite a bit because of the case study and the Illumi and um, and the success we've had. And I first thing I always tell people is like the culture. What is the culture of your organization? Because that's what's gonna that's what's gonna dictate how it receives information. And so, you know, yes, I would say ultimately start small, right? But find out what matters to the organization. How do they measure what matters? And then find a way to drive behavior that impacts that measurement so that they can see what the benefit is, um, you know, but don't be afraid to go big too. Like we went after join. that's the most important thing we do. Uh, it was our first project out of the gate, uh, but it was still a very much, you know, it, you were able to sort of like narrow it down onto like, it's this page being redesigned. Like that's what we had, we had the, the non-member homepage that when you came in, you saw that, and what do we do for, with this? Um, and then that led to the, the, the growth and success we had, um, but it was able, we were able to like really pinpoint where we were going to uh, apply this new method. Um, and then we saw the results of it, which obviously made a believer out of some people, but not all. And uh, we continue to grow that through additional uh, efforts.
0: It's interesting it, to hear your perspective, too, of how you've sort of, you're, you've evolved the practice. Um, you've, you've made it more mature. You've gone from sort of lack of action or inaction, I guess is the better word to use, to um, now, now you're, you've shared a couple other initiatives that you're working on. Um, and But ultimately, if you look back, you've probably seen some bump in design maturity. And I'd love for us to talk a little bit about this concept of design maturity and maybe how you think about it uh, and maybe uh, what your tactics are to continue to uh, increase the maturity of the design practice at
2: AAA? Yeah, it's, it's, it's slow going, but you have to be sort of incremental about cultural shifts. And these are the sorts of things that can take, you know, years to kind of really happen, uh, to really take hold. Um, and where I see it and how I've kind of, you know, had to shift my messaging internally as well is that I think it really comes down to uh, perception of what design means. And I mean, like, literally the word. Right. Because very often, you know, people look at design as the noun, the output of design practices, the 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 piece of fashion, the interior design, all these specialties of design. But these like tangible and visible elements that prove design happened, Right. Um, And what I've been trying to shift people to is this verb form of design. Right. To devise for a specific purpose. Right. So when you design something actively. Right. You are doing something that is. Has to be informed by needs ultimately. Like you can't start a process of devising for a specific purpose without understanding what that purpose is. Why does that purpose matter? What's the outcome of that purpose? And who does it impact? And these are all the sorts of questions that design, again, as a process, uh, takes into account when it devises a particular solution uh, to meet a goal. And the way I think about it with uh, or, or talk about it within an organization as well as uh, externally is, you know. There was a time when we used to talk about data maturity. Are you making data-driven decisions, right? And these days, everybody pushes forward like data, data, data. These are the ways we make decisions. Um, but if we had done kind of what we do with design, which is that the only people who get to talk about data are the people with data in their, in their title, right? The only people that use data are the people with data in their title, right? If we left data to a few math wizards on in a corner of one floor of our office building, how far would we get as an organization in using data? That's effectively what we do with design. We have a couple of people that say, oh, you're a UX designer. You are a interaction designer. You are a design, design, design. These are specialties within design and that we can all use design just as we all use data as a process for understanding our world a little better, as a process for exploring what customers are looking for, uh, because it is not hard to say that a lot of companies have been marching forward for years on really untested assumptions. And just as we were with the qualitative insights around pricing and cost for, for our goods, uh, we didn't understand the nuance and, you know, driving forces behind the behaviors. We just had the data.
0: I'm sorry, I'm distracted because I I think the way that you just described that so simply, like, I, you know, it's just so a lot of practice. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's it's just so approachable when you when you think about it that way, when you think about the evolution of other practices, right, like data um, and, and how that has become, you know, every person at a company can put their, you know, fingerprints on data or they have access to it at, at any point in time. And so, you know, um, thinking about how the design industry, you know, can apply that same sort of practice is, it's, you know, as I've said many times before, I feel like we've only just scratched the surface when it comes to really integrating design and customer insight into the way businesses operate.
2: Absolutely. And and what I think people are starting to understand is that you know quantitative data is important and it is necessary, but it's really half the story. And so what I say a lot of times when people try to throw the stats at me or things that we have, I say, okay, well, that's the what, but why. We have a whole lot of what. And know why. So, do you really understand what the challenge is here? Do you really understand if your solution is effective? You know, yeah, you might have run a test and you got, you know, 52% versus 48%, but why? And can you build upon that? Did you maximize that? Is that as good as it can be? Um, You know, when we did the joint test, it was, they were looking for like three to 5%. Right. This was the incremental thinking of an organization that was like kind of crawling along on its belly, trying to just sort of like slightly improve things here and there without really fundamentally questioning how they got to the conclusions that they relied upon. And when we came in with the the results that were, you know, many times that, uh, you know, hey, check your data. Something's got to be wrong here. Check it again. Uh, You know, oh, well, you're leading with monthly pricing and we do annual pricing. So let's change that on the legacy design. Oh, wait, it's performing worse okay, what do we do now? And it really took a couple months to really have the organization trust uh, that we had achieved something dramatically different. Uh, And we were tracking, you know, 25, 30% before uh, we hit Memorial Day. And Memorial Day, you know, the unofficial start to road trip season, which for AAA is a big deal. uh, We started seeing an 80% outperformance. And the crazy thing is that the, the legacy design on this very important weekend was actually down week over week. And so we could tell that we were clearly reaching a broader audience and we were telling our story of value more effectively to more people. Um, and it really, you know, that's what kind of cemented it. And they finally turned off the test. And now we're 100 uh, percent. And even since then, we've continued to evolve it and improve it. Now our total lift versus legacy is 40 percent, which is just insane for, you know, 100 plus year old company that's been doing this for a long time. But again, we've been marching along on some really unfounded assumptions.
0: To sort of summarize the the core differences between those two, the legacy design and the new design that performed so well, the legacy design was highly focused on price, right? And the new design was focused more on benefits. And, yeah, well, and, so and the then got to price
2: like what? Yeah, we had so we had a specific narrative that we were tracking because yes, the old design, like you know, if you you know, take a screenshot, zoom out, you could still read the price and nothing else. Right. it was definitely the biggest thing on the page it was at the very top everything else is listed underneath it right it was the reason why people make a choice one way or another right and when you anchor people's perception to your entire product just based on the price you know that's what you're competing against is a higher price lower price assumptions of what you actually do um, and what we did instead was we first we divided the experience you know we said we want to address the, the reason they're here first you know there's there's a sense of safety that we deliver to people. That's an important aspect. Don't talk about price until you've confirmed to me that you're going to keep me safe. And so we talked about the benefits. Here's how many towing miles you get. These are the different services you get. Oh, and you may only think we're a tow truck company, but we actually do these other things. And so we had this specific narrative that we, you know, again, co-created with testers, you know, using the platform uh, that built up this sense of value over time. And once they had kind of committed to that sense of value and achieved that, then we sent them to the next part of the experience, which was, you know, your typical e-com chart of here are the tiers, here are your benefits, check boxes for what you get here and there and the price. And so we had cemented that sense of value before we ever showed them a price. And, and that was something we just simply weren't doing, again, because we were fed by years of quantitative survey data, large-scale surveys that said price was the number one driver of both acquisition and loss.
1: I, I find it fascinating both in uh, in practice, like as a consumer of insurance, and like I'm sort of like going along with the story like, yeah, yeah, that'll make sense. Like I, I But it, it feels sort of intuitive, but not like I could see the argument of like, but ultimately, like people are looking for a certain amount of value and that price is really important and people are shopping, but what are they actually shopping for? I, so I think that is intellectually really uh, interesting. I just want to also highlight, I, I I know Janelle made a comment on this as well, but I think the idea that um, you're focused, even in that example, on making the discussion of the design, the discussion of the customer's experience, something that lots of people around the organization can engage in, sort of somewhat disconnected from, yeah, there's also a real practitioner's expertise required to set this up correctly and to go gather that information. I think it's something as an industry we sort of struggle with. I, I, I think of it like, um, as you were describing it, you know, I work with numbers all the time in my job, but I, I don't confuse myself for being an accountant or a finance expert, right? But I also don't say, Oh, are we talking about numbers? Never mind. I can't be in the room for this conversation because I don't have an accounting degree. But we have sort of done that in some areas in in this part of the industry. And I, I think um, you know, the way that you framed that up was so um it's so elegant in its simplicity and but clear, right? And and then you use this example of I can imagine almost anyone in Triple A Club, understanding that this is important. Understanding the conversation you just had about these trade-offs of, you know, focusing on price versus focusing on the value and the things that people get from their membership. Like, you don't have to have a degree in human-computer interaction to understand that those are important topics. Um, but it is ultimately really about getting that feedback, and so I thought that was um, really, really insightful.
2: Yeah, thank you. Yeah, as I said, a lot of hard-won lessons uh, throughout this process. Uh, and it's still something that's evolving within the organization. Because again, the, the root of this is culture. Uh, and if we can't sort of question our culture a little bit and ask like, is it heading in the right direction? You know, What hope do we have for changing it? Um, and the AAA culture is you know, very quant heavy, right? And, and that makes sense. People want to make data-driven decisions. And the uh, qualitative world is kind of squishy and ambiguous at times. And we have to sort of discern meaning. We can't put it in a spreadsheet. Um, there's a, a quote, you know, Marshall McLuhan has that quote of like, the medium is the message. And if the medium of spreadsheets is how we view our businesses and how we view or even our customers, like that is just a dehumanizing process. And the kinds of things you get from qualitative insights can't be neatly tallied in a column and just say, and here's what you can expect at the end result. Again, we were expecting three to 5%, hoping for three to 5% because we had seen so many years of incremental half a percent, 1% get a little something. But then we knew we had something special. Uh, And I wasn't just sandbagging. I was like, hey, I I hope this works out. (laughs) Uh, But I also don't want to misrepresent that like somehow design is this equation that will lead you to a 40% lift in conversions. That would have been insane. And they would have probably just said, don't even bother because we don't believe you. You're crazy.
0: James, when we last spoke, you talked a bit about how customers often have what you call liquid expectations when they engage with any company or experience. Uh, can you define what what you mean by liquid expectations and how these impact even the work you're doing at, at AAA?
2: Yeah, certainly it's a pretty simple concept and, and certainly not mine. I don't want to make claims for it. I think it's the guys at fjord uh, a few years ago. Um, but the idea that like people you know something is serviced in one area of their life and then suddenly they're like, well why can't you do the same? You know, Uber is the ultimate example of like, well, why can't you just bring me things, right? And if they can do it, if they can sync up people to get me things, well, that's why DoorDash exists, right? And in our world, you know, we spent years servicing customers, uh, you know, with tow trucks, with uh, these light fleet vehicles, all these things, sending people out vehicles. But well, we never occurred to us to go build some, some something which we now have called Truck Tracker, and that's because specifically the market had expectations about how we should service their needs based on their interactions with other companies. And and that's the thing that often, I think, gets forgotten. um, And particularly in digital channels, when you're like, hey, you know, they spend 99.999% of their time on other websites, right? They spend most of their time dealing with other companies, dealing with other tools. You can't just assume that, like, you know, they're going to have this encyclopedic knowledge of our systems and our business operations. Um, They are informed by their interactions with the market at large. And if there are expectations that flow in liquid form from industry to industry, um, we have to still meet those things. So our, our competitive sphere is not simply people in the automotive business, insurance business or travel, it's everything. So we have to compete with the best of what Apple puts out there in terms of interfaces and app experiences. We have to compete with things like Uber and, and have a truck tracker technology developed because now people have an expectation of seeing a little tow truck on a map that's coming to them so they feel a sense of safety that like, I know it's actually happening and not just, you know, it's going to be 45 minutes to an hour. It's going to be 20 minutes or 50 minutes. Like they can actually see the thing, the thing happening and, and feel comforted with that. But why didn't we develop that on our own? Right. We we weren't looking at the at the experiential problems that our services were creating effectively. Right. And it's this idea of like, you know, you either have uh, intentional experiences or unintended consequences. And we were dealing with a lot of unintended consequences of our, you know, great service. We have a legacy of operational excellence. But at the same time, we weren't examining that those operations in order to understand where the friction was, where we could do better, or even looking at the broader marketplace to understand, you know, where can we get ideas from about how to better deliver our services.
0: Yeah, I really love that example. And, you know, to, the point, to your point of sort of like transforming how people think about AAA, like, The truck tracker concept that AAA has sort of blows my mind given like what I know about the organization. We don't have to include this in the podcast, the actual podcast recording, but I did want to share with you, I am a AAA customer and it's because my dad had me on his plan when I was in college. And then when I kind of, you know, became an adult or whatever, um, I wanted to, to kind of keep that AAA membership, so I still mail in a, che- I mail in a check every year to pay my AAA bill because, like, I don't even know how to pay it digitally. Like, I didn't even, th- I didn't even think you could do that.
2: Yeah, and, and but, so know, the
0: truck tracker thing is like next level.
2: I, I have heard the story so many times. Right, there's one. There's the legacy part of it. Absolutely, we have a lot of legacy members that you know you got it from a parent or a grandparent. Um, but then, two, and this is the most important part, is the those expectations of digital interactions. They don't have that with us. And that's part of the assumption of you're a tow truck company. What do you need a website for? Um, You know, they don't feel like they need to engage with us digitally, which is a a challenge for us. Right. We have, you know, realistically speaking, maybe a quarter of our membership actually engages with our digital channels, which to me just represents massive opportunity. And then even when they do engage with it, you know, most of them are coming in to do what you're talking about, you know, Renewing their membership. Uh, and so there's still a massive opportunity even within that group. So for me, it was just exciting all around to say, like, you know, we have a massive untapped uh, network of members that, it, that we can deliver additional value to. Uh, and then, of course, they deliver additional value to us.
0: Yeah, it's, a, it's an exciting opportunity to frame it that way. Absolutely. Um, We're going to move over to the lightning questions. So these are a series of questions that we ask every guest on the podcast. Um, So we'll start with the first one. So what's a book that you've recently read or picked up that you'd recommend to our listeners?
2: Yeah, like finishing a book still feels like such a luxury, even in the age of COVID. But um, uh, one that I I picked up recently and I'm really happy for is uh, The Trusted Advisor. It's actually a 20-year-old book. It just came out like in its 20th edition. Um, And it's, you know, I read lots of stuff that's like specific to CX and and UX, but this is more of a broad, uh, you know, professional services. And it it really helped underscore for me. And I I wish I'd read it 20 years ago. um, The sort of the currency that is trust and how we build it and lose it. And, you know, where like nothing really happens that doesn't isn't built on trust. Uh, And I certainly, you know, in my in my 20s and 30s, had spent plenty of time frustrated at why people couldn't just see how obvious it was uh, that this certain thing was right or true or, or whatnot, but they have, you know, their own view of the world. And if I wasn't accommodating that um, appropriately and, and and couching what I was saying in, in, a, in a way that generates trust, uh, it was really challenging. So, yeah, so the trusted advisor, I would definitely recommend uh, to people either starting out or, you know, deep into their career about sort of what trust means.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, building trust is a big part of success in a role like, you have or in a a role and and actually any role, right. And getting people to sort of.
2: And I um, would say, especially for this role, right. You're saying like, you know, we have this, uh, you know, I think what's kind of becoming like an emergent uh, awareness of qualitative uh, research and practices and, and design as a holistic perspective. And for a lot of people, that's a really uncomfortable place to be. Uh, It's very ambiguous. It's uncertain, right? You talk about like the VUCA acronym, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, right? It applies to many of those things where people feel like with their spreadsheets, at least they have something that feels like certainty as much as it is still looking through a keyhole. You know, they feel like they have something. Whereas with design practices, it is as humans are messy, right? And so it feels hard to kind of work in this space. And if you're trying to tell people this has value, this is right, and they just aren't comfortable with it, like they're not going to come along for the ride. So I really, you know, a lot of that uh, trust building exercises in the early stages of the work that we've done since the success has been to sort of, you know, make sure that we're laying a good foundation of trust because we recognize that we're asking people to come along for a ride that makes them very uncomfortable.
0: Yep. Um, So how about a piece of advice that you would give to somebody who is trying to convince someone in their organization to invest in customer feedback and customer listening?
2: Uh, yeah, we, we touched on this a little bit earlier about culture. You know, I, I really think that, you know, understanding the culture of your organization, you know, are they very risk averse and very quant driven, right? That's a different conversation than a, than a company that wants to, you know, move fast and break things. And so there's a, a different way of kind of addressing those different cultures. I think it's still based in trust, uh, but ultimately you're looking to say like, you know, what what matters to you? How can we measure what matters to you? And where's the inflection point that we can, you know, use to demonstrate a change in behavior based on these insights, and so if you know customer feedback uh, hasn't been collected in a, in a qualitative sense before, you know how do you apply it to something that matters most to someone who can make a decision about it too? Because that was part of the challenge that I learned early on was that I, I was talking to people that didn't believe qualitative insights mattered, um, weren't necessarily able to just approve the spend. They had a lot of other competing interests, um, and so it was really challenging to kind of get over that hurdle until we had the right pe- place, uh, people in place. Um, but for people that broadly are facing this challenge, you know, start small, you know, f- find your allies uh, and then find out what matters to them.
0: Love it. Uh, what's a recent great experience that you've had lately and what made it so great?
2: Uh, you know, as we said, of sort getting back into travel, um, uh, an unexpected one, uh, the Delta app. It actually was, you know, really well designed, um, you know, really easy and smooth to move through. But like, what it also kind of keyed me into through some of the messaging is that clearly they have somebody at a pretty high level that has a a really high design maturity, because they're making decisions about, you know, how they engage with their customer base. The one that stands out to me was like, you know, no fees on changing a ticket. Right? It's just such a natural, human, empathetic way of looking at the needs of, of a traveler uh, that it really shocked me, actually. As great as the, the app was to use, it was clearly built upon this empathetic perspective that says, you know, we're moving humans from one place to another, not you know, cells in a spreadsheet.
0: I can uh, vouch for, for that Delta app experience, too. I think it's super slick. And there's so many things that you can do that uh, you can't do within an app with other airlines. Which like, you know, time and and having to call and contact in different ways and and not having to do that is like just so valuable. Um, These are the things that keep you loyal to to certain companies. Um, All right. So when you think about the future of design uh, and UX, what are you most excited about?
2: So, uh, for me, and again, this is design as the verb, right, um, is bringing more people into it. Um, I think the democratization of design practices is going to be hugely important to the future. I think it's going to separate leaders from laggards as people begin to understand that they can incorporate, just as they incorporated data before, across the organization. People are going to understand that you can incorporate design practices uh, design efforts through the organization. Uh, and that's going to lead to you know better customer experiences, also even better employee experiences. I think as people are, are seeking a sense of meaning from their work, and you have you know, a lot of talk about the great resignation of where people are going, what they're doing, uh, they want to feel excited about engaging in a new way of doing something. They're, they're leveling up their own skills in uh, being able to apply some of these design sensibilities, and also you know to have the successes that design can bring as well.
0: Yeah, and also, you know, connecting with their end users, I think, is a big sense of and can fuel a big sense of sort of like belonging and and uh, this feeling like, you know, it's rewarding to be able to actually connect with the people that you're creating experiences for and hear from them and learn from them and then make it better.
2: Absolutely. It, it humanizes the entire interaction. And so yeah. I think you know, good, a good customer experience derives from good employee experiences. Um, and design as a method can help uh, help with that. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Well, thanks so much for for coming on the show James. This was fantastic. It was awesome to talk through the these topics with you.
2: Thanks so much for having me.